Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz Podcast, the second episode of the two-part series on the Paul Vasey Lab, <laughs> our third gender research. Uh, I'm Drake. And I'm Kyle. And today we're going to be talking to Lana Peterson. Yeah, so, so, so Lana, what lab are you in? What, are you, what do you uh, study and what are we going to be learning today? Okay, great. Uh, so yeah, my name is Lana Peterson and I'm from the University of Lethbridge in Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada. And um, I'm from the Laboratory of Comparative Sexuality. And today I'm going to be talking about male sexual orientation and how it's uh, not as straightforward as we'd otherwise or tend to think of it as. Um, specifically, I study men who have sexual relationships with biological males who present in a feminine manner um, across cultures. So be it um, third gender males um, or men who have sex with uh, transgender women who have not undergone uh, gender confirmation surgeries. So Lana, uh, at the beginning of each episode, we ask our guests to help us define some terminology that we might use throughout the course of the episode uh, so that we're all on the same page with it. What terms might be run into? Uh, so one term that will, will probably be useful to talk about is transgender. So this is an individual whose gender presentation is distinct from that which they were assigned at birth. So sometimes people distinguish between male to female transgender individuals or female to male um, and those that identify as gender non-binary. So this is um, someone who feels like they don't, they're not, oh, sorry, they don't belong to the man or woman gender binary. So they publicly identify as an alternative gender category or as multiple gender categories or as agendered. Um, in Canada and kind of U.S. Western cultures, um, gender non-binary individuals were not as common, but this seems to be kind of changing more. Um, in recent years, we see more people identifying as these alternative gender categories or just generally non-binary ones. Mm -hmm. However, in other cultures, it's pretty common for people to identify as uh, belonging to a non-binary uh, non gender category. So, for example, in Samoa and Mexico, where we do a lot of our research, we have the Fafafine and the Mushe. So these are um, individuals who are born as biological males and present in more of a feminine manner, but they don't identify as being women. They identify as an alternative gender category, or sometimes we call it a third gender category. Um, so sometimes people distinguish between transgender and gender non-binary, but... In both cases, they're individuals who um, don't identify with the gender in which they were born. Right, that's perfect. And so there's also a term that we, I know it's going to come up is cisgender. So what does cisgender mean? Cisgender is an individual whose gender identity is consistent with that which they've been assigned at birth. Okay, so falling within the binary kind of spectrum that you were talking about. Yeah, so like if someone was born male and they identify as a boy or a man, they're considered cisgender. And same okay. with an individual who was born female and identifies as being a girl or a woman. Great. Fantastic. Lana, there was one more term, um, and I'm definitely going to have a hard time pronouncing it. Uh, so I'm going to give it a shot, and then you correct me and give us the definition for it. It's gynandromorphophilia. Yeah, so it's a mouthful. If you break it down a little bit, it kind of helps. So there's gyne, which refers to female and male. 
um, morph, so change, and philia, which is attraction. So gyandromorphophilia is a sexual interest in biological males who present in a feminine manner. Um, and oftentimes these individuals have augmented their bodies to appear more feminine, so like through hormones or surgical enhancements, um, but they retain their male genitalia. So it's, in other words, sexual attraction to male to female transgender women. That's also referring to the, the populations that you guys research, right? So the, the, the Mouche and the Fafafine? Or yeah, no? originally when this kind of, the first publication on this came out, um, the authors suggested that um, attraction to alternative or third gender males would be considered gyandromorphophilia as well. Um, more recently, some authors have suggested that no, it's like distinct because these individuals haven't often augmented their bodies or um, they have to a lesser degree. But I mean, it, mm -hmm. it depends on culture and access to kind of different hormones and treatments. Right. Um, but we've kind of, well, my work, we're looking at whether it might be considered a more historically recent derivative of a attraction that has existed for quite some time, and that is to any biological male who presents in a feminine manner. Okay, so it's the lack of augmentation per se for those those populations that kind of separates them a little bit from the westernized form? Yeah. Yeah, okay, interesting. That's good to know. Lana, now that we've got some of the terms defined, um, what does the field already know about male sexual orientation um, and what is it that we're working towards in your research? Based on previous research, we know that the majority of males or men are either exclusively or near exclusively attracted to um, either women in most cases or men. Um, and then some men experience attraction to both men and women. Um, Consistent with their self-reported sexual orientation identities, the majority of men, sorry, the majority of men, um, are highly responsive to cues of gender. So they exhibit um, greater genital tumescence, which is just like genital engorgement and erection, um, okay. to images of their preferred targets, um, and very little response to their non-preferred targets. Um, this has been found with other measures as well, which kind of act as a proxy for a sexual attraction and sexual arousal, such as um, viewing time. So uh, the length of time in which a person um, takes to respond to a question after presented with a stimuli. So mm -hmm. previous research has found that uh, people take longer to respond to their preferred targets than their non-preferred targets. And men tend to prefer or tend to take longer to respond to one target and not the other. So either men or women, but not both. Right. And by targets, you mean like in the labs, generally when they're measuring this, it's like pictures of either a male or, or a man or a woman or uh, a third gender or some or a different gender. Yeah. Is that what you mean by target? Yeah, exactly. So like their preferred stimuli um, mm -hmm. or if they identify as a heterosexual or uh, androphilic, then it's. It's uh, a man. Yes, a man. And a gynophilic would be a woman. woman right? Yeah. So, like yeah. videos or um, images of like, mm -hmm. their preferred sex or gender. Okay. So, you pretty much just 
jumped the gun essentially on what I was about to ask was how do they measure sexual orient or sexual attraction in in the research in your research or or other other uh, other researchers in your area? So you have uh, basically stimulus that they can look at pictures or videos of of people that they're either attracted to or they not they don't identify as being attracted to, and you measure. Uh, you said engorgement, so erections, uh, eye tracking. Are there other ways that you can you measure sexual attraction? So yeah, we mentioned viewing time. There's also eye tracking. Yeah. So that's um, like what areas of the screen they'll look at. So um, a lot of times you can look at, like they'll have an individual picture and look at where on the body they're looking at. Right. Um, or you can have two pictures on opposite sides of the screen and you can look at which one they're more likely to look at or who they spend longer looking at. Um, there's pupil dilation. So like um, genitals, pupils get larger when you see someone you're attracted to. I mean, I guess men's genitals, not women's. Um, <laughs> so your pupils tend to get larger uh, when you're aroused and so, or looking at targets that you find sexually attractive. So people have used... Um, pupil dilation as a measure of sexual arousal as well. So all these measures have found that um, most men are attracted to women and have very little response to men. And then some men are attracted to men, obviously, and have very little response to men. And in cases too, men do have attraction to both men and women. Um, Although instances of the latter are uh, more rare than the others. Right. I have a quick question that's a little bit tangential, but I kind of I'm interested in if you know the answer. Um, is there certain what I I guess I would imagine that it differs in between cultures, but what are the types of uh, what are the areas that most individuals look at when you're looking at eye tracking and sexual attraction? Are there certain like body parts that westernized cultures look at versus non-westernized cultures? That's a really good question. I have no idea. Yeah, I didn't know if you knew the answer or not. I was just, I was just <laughs> curious if you had that on hand or if there's like if there's a difference between um, hetero males or homosexual males or any any orientation, if there's a difference between what they looked at, like a gay male versus a female that's a- attracted to or an androphilic uh, uh, versus gynophilic male or female. Yeah, like there's a there's a sex difference. So men in general are more interested, like more not necessarily more interested, but they spend longer looking at um, the body compared to the face, whereas women kind of look more at the face. Okay. Um, but no, that's actually a really interesting question. Yeah. Um, there's definitely sex differences in patterns of attract or patterns of um, eye gaze, no matter what. Um, even men, like men, stare at genitals, like penises even if they're not attracted to it, they kind of check out the body more. Um, So I don't know. I don't know whether that would change depending on cultural context, but I think there would be some really cool questions that you could um, ask and things you could look at with that. We're Mm. not specifically looking at where on the body our participants are looking at for this study, but that would definitely be a really cool um, follow-up study especially comparing like in cultures where you have these um, their gender or alternative gender biological males um, where they're commonly present whether that would affect where on the body you're looking more because you'd kind of expect that it would mm-hmm. 
that would be a yeah. great kind of follow-up. One thing I'd like to jump in on is you mentioned pupil dilation earlier. And that's really interesting to me because I was rereading Thinking Fast and Slow recently. And there's an interesting uh, part of the book where they discuss uh, how they kind of stumbled upon this pupil uh, dilation as being a signal of arousal. And it doesn't matter the context. Um, you've obviously said that in sexual situations, um, there will be pupil dilation as a signal of arousal. But they also found it uh, looking at complex math problems and other uh, arousing images that may not be sexual uh, in nature. And so I thought that was really interesting. It shows how our brains are wired. You know, the arousal signal can come from many different areas. It doesn't necessarily have to be exclusively sexual, but we exhibit the same sort of physiological response, which is kind of an interesting characteristic of the human body. Yeah, so it's like any time you're trying to take in more information, it seems like your pupils dilate in response. So whether you're you're reading and needing to think about things or um, a situation has like a lot going on that your body's really kind of turned into and um, turned up to respond to, yeah. you do have that response. And it's uh, it's tied to the the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. I really like the way you define that. You said when, when the, when the, the body or the individual wants to take in more information, because I think of you uh, in the research that you guys are looking at when you're sexually attracted to someone, you want to take in as much information <laughs> as yeah. you can about that person's body. <laughs> it's, it's a very, it's a, it's an eloquent way of putting it. I really like it. Well, I mean, it, people do I think when we're making mating decisions like there's a lot more going on than I think we like it it kind of feels like this hot response like it's just instant but there's a lot of information that you're taking in and you're considering and you're weighing and um, it makes sense that we would treat that in the same not necessarily in the same way but in a in a cognitive manner like making decisions about the quality of that individual and um whether they're kind of worth the investment, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it reminds me of, and it's, it's a really good, good point, Kyle. I, it, it reminds me of the, one of our first episodes when we talked about the Capilano suspension bridge and arousal in that, in that form where the, the whole implication was that you're supposed to go and do exciting things on a first date. Cause that arousal might translate to sexual arousal Yeah, because the brain doesn't necessarily know how to parse those two. So it's, it's just reminding me of that situation where it's, most arousal is good arousal when you're trying to woo someone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you don't have you... a suspension bridge nearby, just get a bunch of really challenging math problems. And... Yeah. <laughs> Do yeah, math I mean... problems on the Capilano suspension bridge. That's a yeah. sweet date. <laughs> or just start opening doors really suddenly so they kind of get nervous. <laughs> That'd be amazing. I love that, that study. It's so simple oh, and man. like so clear. Yeah, it's again. I think we will we'll put up a post of it. I think we did on the first episode because we talked yeah. about it. It's on it's such episode. a fun. It's a fun episode, or it's a fun, uh, fun study. very fun study. Yeah. Um, okay, well, let's move on. I think that was great. That was a really good intro to what we're going to start talking about. So, I mean, within sexual orientation, I, we know that you're because of the lab that you're in and the work that you're doing. You you've been looking at different cultures. Uh, what is how common is it? for men to have sex with non-binary category or non-binary gendered individuals? Well, thanks for starting with a question that I can't answer. Um, <laughs> I don't know the exact... 
I don't know the exact frequency um, <laughs> with which this occurred. Is it common? It does seem to be very common. Um, so, for example, in one of our studies, we were in Samoa and I was trying to get groups. Um, so I wanted to have fafafine, so the third gender. Um, and I wanted to have men who didn't sleep with uh, any third gender males or biological males. And then I wanted to have those that did. And it was really easy to find our group of men that did. And it was actually really difficult to find ones that didn't. Um, that could be specific to Samoa. Um, I think maybe mm -hmm. since it's um, Fafafine are so accepted, it might be more common there. Um, whereas other cultures, if it's uh, less accepted or kind of has a cultural taboo, um, it might not be as common and you'd kind of predict that. But mm -hmm. kind of whenever they are... Um, common and uh, accepted part of the social environment, at least based on ethnographic reports, it seems like at least some portion of men are reporting that they engage in sexual activity with um, biological males who present in a feminine manner. So these third gender males. That's really interesting. And that's something that uh, honestly is counterintuitive to the way that I would have would have expected. I wouldn't have expected that you'd have more individuals saying that they would be like be engaging in sexual activity with non, uh, non-binary or the, the fefefine. So this, I, in my, in my poor calculations and un, uneducated guess would be different in Western cultures. Do you think, or do you think there'd be as much buy-in? Like you said, it's, it's definitely going to be a huge difference across cultures and how much, how taboo it is. Yeah. Uh, but do you see, would you expect the same thing in Western cultures to see a lot of men reporting that they would have sex with non, uh, non-binary gender, uh, identifying individuals? Part of it could be the environment. Mm -hmm. So in Western cultures, even if you had, um, that sexual interest, you have less of an opportunity to act on it just because the number of individuals who present in that manner are fewer. Um, however, if you look at like pornography, um, featuring transgender individuals, people might be able to express um, that interest in that way. So um, I don't know exactly how common uh, it is like for people to look at mm -hmm. this pornography, but it is one of the more common pornography categories. So um, whether that means people are looking at, like more people are looking at it or looking at it more frequently, um, so these researchers, Ogus and Gadam, they wrote a book, um, Billion Wicked Thoughts, and in it they um, they looked at people's viewing or search histories, specifically related to sex terms, um, and they found that the category uh, for biological males who present in a feminine manner, so gyandromorphophilia porn, which is in lay terms frequently referred to as um, she-male porn, although it's not a preferred term right. by any means but it was uh i think the 17th most common search term so it definitely seems like there is quite a large interest in wow. it um wow. even the like the porn category it gets i think it was about six percent of internet traffic on porn sites which that's it doesn't seem like or sorry no that's wrong <laughs> lesbians <laughs> get six percent of internet traffic which is the most common right type but they right. get about like 2 or 1.5%. So it's still like a, a large percent of the viewership compared to like kind of what you'd anticipate. Right, yeah. 
So it does seem like um, even in Western cultures, there is an interest in it. It's also just the difference in kind of how um, male antrophilia manifests. Mm. So um, in Western cultures, if someone's born um, attracted to males, they tend to present in a masculine form. So they present in a cisgender form. Whereas in places like Samoa, um, the op- or the transgender form is the more common form. So if they're born androphilic, they tend to present in a um, transgender manner. So they present as in a feminine manner. So if you have, like, imagine in Canada, if everyone presented, like anyone who had androphilic feelings presented in a feminine form, there'd be a lot more opportunities. There'd just be a lot more people to engage in these activities with there'd be a lot more people to seek out you'd run into them more um whereas uh it's just not not as common you don't you don't see it as frequently especially if you're uh not in a big city Mm -hmm. that's a good point too yeah that being actually i think it's kind of like the mere exposure effect right like people tend to develop preferences for things that they're more exposed to right so i think that's that definitely makes sense in this context uh and when you're talking about sexual attraction, right? If you're not exposed to it, how are you supposed to know what to, what to call it or what, to, what, what it is? Yeah, you might not realize it and you might not be able to mm-hmm. act on it. Yeah, very cool. Is there anything else that you'd want to talk about to lead into the work that you're doing now? What are some examples of questions being asked in the field? This is kind of what you're getting at, right? Like why do some men exhibit sexual attraction and arousal that's not towards cisgender men and women? Yeah, so like um, if... If men are so responsive to cues of gender and most men are responsive only to one gender, then why is it that um, this sexual interest in biological males who present in a feminine manner, so um, essentially they have qualities of both sexes, um, why is it, I mean, relatively common at least, or at least common among a non-negligible portion of the population to experience some sexual interest in um, these transgender women or um, or biological males who identify as a non-gender binary category. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of what we're pursuing with this research because it seems to contradict our understanding of existing or un- contradict our existing models of male sexual orientation. Yeah, definitely. And so let's get into it. How are you going about measuring that? What is What is the way that you're assessing sexual orientation for these males that are interested in non-binary individuals? Yeah, so I'm looking at, um, I'm using a couple different methods. So for two of my studies, or for my PhD, but I've used them in my master's as well, um, I'm using viewing time. So I'm in Samoa, men are presented with faces of men and faces of women. And I'm looking at how long they view the images of men and the images of women. So the idea for this is looking at whether men who engage in sex with fafafine are more accepting or um, like they look longer at their non-preferred sex relative to men who only have sex with women or fafafine who only have sex with men. Um, so getting at whether they have kind of lower aversion to their non-preferred sex and whether this could influence their sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for the second part of the study, or of my PhD, I'm looking at um, 
I, I'm using eye tracking me- measures to look at attraction to cisgender women, uh, cisgender men, and gyandromorphs, so biological males who present in a feminine mm-hmm. manner. And I'm going to, I'm doing a study in Canada and then in Samoa and in Mexico. So we're using the same or similar stimuli in all the cultures, but we're going to look at whether men view the gyandromorphs longer than they view their non-preferred sex and how that compares to their preferred sex. Interesting. So are they looking at them longer than their non-preferred sex, but less time than their preferred sex? Or for some men, is this pretty comparable? Um, So this will kind of help get at, like, kind of, is this a common attraction among all men, regardless of culture, or whether only some men experience this attraction. And so how do you, with, with the eye gaze, how do you differentiate curiosity versus sexual interest when you're talking about eye gaze? Like I, the way that I think of it as um, people, that are, people that aren't as familiar or aren't exposed to as many gyandromorphs, would they, what if they're just more interested or curious about those individuals so they tend to gaze more at them is is there a way to kind of parse that when you're looking at these things yeah that's actually a really good question and it's something that could influence our results so we have additional measures so we're looking at uh, the length of time that they're looking at them how quickly they are to fixate on uh, like these individuals compared to other individuals and compared to neutral stimuli Um, And then we're also asking them to report how sexually attractive they found each. So if they're gazing at them kind of longer and or are quickly looking back and kind of at least furtively glancing at them, but then are saying that they're not attracted to them, that might tell us that they are interested in these individuals, but not in the, not in a sexual way, like just in a, right. Yeah. More of a curiosity. Okay. That makes, that actually gets it. The, the question then that's 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 interesting and so it kind of breaches the gap between sexual interest aversion or just plain curiosity by by controlling for all those things yeah absolutely and then we're also in that um so they'll have a block in which they're um we're looking at their eye gaze patterns and then we're going to have a second block in which we look at pupil size so that should also kind of be telling so if those measures are also contradictory or whether they all converge on a similar um, mm. pattern. So um, these, with every study, like there's no perfect measures, there's no perfect Never. methods, there's limitations, Never. there's kind of costs you have to balance, there's a lot of considerations to take in, but hopefully looking at converging med- uh, measures and seeing whether similar patterns are found in each, that would help kind of tease apart what's actually going on. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think that it's really important, like, like it, you went through all the ways that you can measure sexual orientation or sexual attraction, right? So you have to pick some in the end when you're, when you're creating a study. You can't do all of them because then just there's a million things that you need to account for. So choosing the most appropriate for your populations is always hard, and there's always pros and cons to choosing those. Yeah, so, like, people argue that um, genital arousal is kind of the gold standard for male, like, measuring male sexual orientation which would be super cool if we could do. Um, however, the limitation of that is um, it's pretty invasive yeah. <laughs> and yeah. might not be accepted in, like, especially when we're going to different cultures. And it's also a lot of, like, a lot of stuff to take with us because you need, like, the, the mechanism itself, so the P90 
penile plethysmograph, which is just a like a loop gauge that goes around the penis. But you also need everything to clean right. it and um, measure it. And so luckily with our eye tracker, <laughs> it's just a little tiny bar that we can stick on the computer and it's ready to go. Yeah. Lana, what do you expect to find uh, from the study? So I'd predict for most men, um, they'd experience attraction to these individuals that exceeds that of um, their non-preferred sex. So they'd be more, like, for most men, they're heterosexual. They'd ex- uh, experience greater attraction to um, gyandromorphs than, or transgender women or biological males um, who presented in feminine matter, sorry, than to mm-hmm. men. Right, um, right. And we kind of expect to find this regardless of culture, but um, in cultures in which men are routinely exposed to these individuals and they're not stigmatized, we're expecting them to be upshifted. So they'd experience greater attraction to these individuals than men in cultures in which these are, um, they're not as common or they are stigmatized. I have a, I have a quick question for you, Lena, in this I'm not sure if you have any hypotheses about this or not, but what do you think about uh, individuals that are uh, same-sex attracted? Would they have the same kind of relationship between the gyandromorph uh, attention, do you think? Yeah, so, well, we're looking at that, and we kind of expect the opposite pattern to be found. Um, So potentially because they have cues of their uh, preferred sex, they'd experience some attraction, but less than that of the to their preferred sex okay okay interesting, interesting. yeah previous studies oh, cool. have found that like some men who specifically seek out these individuals to like they found them on um so this is shoes research in bailey's lab um they found that men who were searching out um gyandromorphs on craigslist so they wanted to specifically have sex with transgender women who hadn't undergone sex reassignment surgery they had uh sexual attraction to gyandromorphs that was on par with that of their attraction to women. So um, there could be individual differences as well. So we're going to kind of try to tease this apart a bit too and see whether there's differences within the population and um, kind of what the just typical pattern is for men. Interesting. I, I think we may have asked this to Scott last episode. And I don't think he gave an answer or I don't know if there was an answer. Um, what do you call individuals that are attracted to gyandromorph, uh, gyandromorphs? What is the sexual attraction? Like what there's a heterosexual, there's homosexual, there's gynophilic, there's androphilic. Is it gyandrophilic? Is that, is that what it is? Well, the attraction would be called gyandromorphophilia, but, um, all right. That's what it is. Yeah. The interesting part is like a lot of cultures, men commonly like, acknowledge that they have this attraction but in a lot of cultures it's not distinguished between normal attraction so in Samoa men who have sex with fafafine they don't uh, call themselves by any other term it's not their sexual orientation isn't considered to change um, Hmm. based on this behavior and that seems to be quite typical in cultures in which um, men regularly acknowledge that they have sex with uh, alternative gender individuals sometimes people will distinguish between whether they're taking the top and bottom role um usually the ones who are insertive during anal sex uh they're just considered like typical men whereas um if they're receptive 
then that will change a bit. But it doesn't seem to be as distinguished as like other sexual orientation terms. Like people don't usually have this as a basis of identity, which is kind of surprising um, given other identity categories and how commonly people have like primary sexual orientation identities and even secondary. Um, We see that a lot in like the gay community. People will identify as tops and bottoms. Um, But this doesn't seem to be something that people kind of identify with as much. Um, and it could be because these men are heterosexual for the most part, and maybe that doesn't um, kind of change how they see themselves. Um, mm-hmm. But some some individuals, that's not the case, so they will identify as bisexual, and a lot of men report that they do so because it's a way of acknowledging this um, attraction that they do experience and acknowledging that these individuals are biological males. So. Right, right. So, that, so they might not actually identify as Gaia Andromorphophilic if they engage in sex with Gaia Andromorphs. They might, yeah. they might say they're heterosexual, but it seems like there's some more our sexual fluidity in a sense where they're just like, it doesn't define me, but I can I still engage in sex with them. Yeah. Which is- so I, I guess it depends on like how people see their partners and like kind of um, how they're interpreting their own behavior, which is a, a really interesting part of. Um, like identity and sexual orientation identity, it all depends on how you're perceiving your actions and how you're perceiving your attractions. Um, it's not it's not like other things where once you do this, you're categorized by yourself and everyone as being mm-hmm. this. Like it's really um, open to interpretations. Yeah. Uh, we, we as humans love to put people in boxes and, and categories and that's just how we compartmentalize things and I, I, I'm literally guilty of it doing it like 10 minutes ago so I'm just that's how we function as humans well, so it's no I, I it's think interesting. that's that's actually an interesting question about human nature like why do we love kind of categorizing why are we all like little folk biologists and kind of put everything <laughs> into different categories because mm-hmm. we do we mm-hmm. do seem to label things and love love understanding it and to understand it it seems like we need to assign a label we need to like put a name to something before we can kind of dig into what's causing it. It's the idea of heuristics and we're, we're enabling ourselves to have conversations by providing these labels. And so um, it's a lot easier for us to have a conversation about heterosexuality or homosexuality once we have those terms and we understand what we think those terms mean. And so we're on we the just, same page for the most part, right? Like yeah. we're on the same page reading the same book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it just helps us. It makes those little mental maps a little bit easier for us to navigate, I think. But um, it's challenging when you're in a situation where, uh, you know, people don't abide or or fit neatly into the categories that we've assigned. And, and suddenly uh, that can be challenging for us to then reconcile cognitively. So I think that's a really fascinating thought. It's, it also brings up the idea of like, certain cultures don't see the need to define things which i which i like too like i think it's the russian language has two different words for blue and not just like light blue dark blue it's like distinctly different words and they mean different things um and so by having those but they actually perceive blue as slightly different depending on whether it falls into one category or the other and so the label is actually um hugely influential on their cognitive understanding of the world which 
is uh, I think what you're getting to with the the words for snow or um, any other situation where we've developed multiple words for for something. Yeah, it's like the Inuit people have like a bunch of words for snow that whereas we don't require we don't feel like the need uh, to have fifty different words for snow. In, in different cultures where there actually isn't snow, right? Yeah. Uh, same thing with sexuality. Some some cultures appreciate or want to box sexuality into different categories, and some are like, oh, it doesn't really matter who I have sex with. It's I identify as this, and that's that's all that matters. Yeah, applying the Sheffield Wharf hypothesis to sexual orientation. Yeah, yeah, define to find that, that'd be amazing. The Sheffield Wharf hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh <laughs> is that the verbal eye roll? Yeah. <laughs> it's just God, the yeah. idea that uh kind of words and um your understanding of words shape your perception so there's kind of two hypotheses one the strong hypothesis which is that it dictates you like your language dictates how you perceive the world and this hypothesis hasn't been greatly supported but the weak, there is support for the weak version. So that's just that it influences um, how you see the world. And a lot of times that color perception is cited as an example. So um, yeah. if you have labels yeah. for colors, you'll kind of distinguish between them in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, counting that, systems might be as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, counting systems is really interesting. Mm-hmm. We won't we won't go down this road yeah, because uh, that's not what we're here yeah. to discuss. But um, great tangent, though. I, I think it's very applicable to what we're talking about, right? The ability to put words to it or define things is what we're trying to do. Yeah, I th- maybe. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Lana. Well, no, just um, people have argued that like um, gay and like homosexuality is a historically recent phenomenon. And um, because of this, or they say this because other cultures and other times haven't had words to distinctly define it. And it's kind of an issue of people, like the behavior would have existed, but because there's no category, people have a hard time understanding that people could have recognized that the behavior did exist even with not a category label. So they might not have identified or seen themselves as belonging to a separate category but the behavior could have still existed and the feelings could have still existed. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's multiple components to sexual orientation and it's, sometimes I think people talk past each other or have a hard time understanding um, different times and different places or different, um, even just different ideas on it because there's like these multiple layers and multiple components to sexual orientation, um, which often mm-hmm. get overlooked. Yeah, certainly. Um and I think that leads us really beautifully into sort of the implications of your work going forward. Um, if you wouldn't mind just speaking on them, what you think uh, your work will help us understand. Yeah, well, I hope this, uh, this research helps people understand their own sexual feelings. Um, I hope it helps un- people understand, like, if their partners are having attractions to people that in their mind they, they might think kind of defy their sexual orientation or result in it or if they think that um, they might not be heterosexual if they're kind of attracted to transgender individuals I hope it helps people understand that it may not be the case that um, sexual orientation just isn't kind of as straightforward or as clear-cut as we tend to um, believe and hope this helps people come to terms with um, their own feelings or even just kind of gain a greater understanding about how 
um, sexual orientation is structured, how it's organized, how it can um, be influenced by experience. Mm -hmm. I think it's great. I, I really, I think that implication is you even undersell it. It's so important that people, uh, I mean, really understand sexual orientation or sexual attraction a little bit more because it's such a in Western culture, at least, it seems like it's a very taboo topic. And the more people talk about it, the more acceptable it becomes, the better most people are going to be off, are, are going to end up being off. And uh, I was going to bring something up with stigma, but I think you could probably, you're probably getting at that too, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it helps like once you have an understanding and um, once you kind of know what's going on, um, it helps reduce stigma. Like it doesn't seem as like weird or unusual. And I think having that greater understanding, um, can help reduce stigma and, or can, can help at least people understand that they can seek out help to, um, overcome their own feelings or if they have negative thoughts about, um, their feelings. Yeah. Right. Like being sexually attracted to non-binary genders, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's something that's completely like acceptable and, and has been seen in different cultures around the world. A lot of people have the same experience. It's not as cut and dry as binary as we like to make it seem, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing to, to, to note and to end, I think, the first portion of the, the episode on. Definitely go and check out your local LGBTQ plus groups and, and, and resources because there's a lot of people in most cities, most big cities, most even maybe in, in smaller cities, small like uh, rural towns, there may be resources or communities to, to join in, in that area. So, I mean, they're great resources. They're great people that are in those, uh, those groups. Yeah, and I guess if you don't even have like physical um, groups available to you, there's I mean, we're so connected online now. Like, you can reach out and find people who mm -hmm. have common interests and who kind of have had um, gone through these experiences and can help out. Yeah, and we could yeah. finally use this amazing tool that we have, the internet, <laughs> for something good. For good. <laughs> for something positive. Yeah. Something positive other than just having Lana join us, <laughs> from, you know, hundreds yeah. of kilometers away. Exactly. All right. So with that, let's head into the brain break. Uh, thank you, Drake, for giving us the outro into it. Lana, thank you for joining us for the first half. On the flip side, we'll get into some myths, misconceptions, and some water cooler facts uh, that you can bring uh, to work or to school or to uh, your local watering hole, wherever you might share facts. Uh, so until then, cheers. Holly came from Miami, FLA Hitchhiked away across USA Plucked her eyebrows on the way Shaved her legs and then he was a she She says, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side Said, hey honey, take a walk on the wild side Everybody's darling But she never lost her head Even when she was giving head She says, hey babe, 
take a walk on the wild side. Said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. And girls go do 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 Okay, welcome back to Brain Buzz. My name's Lana Peterson, and that was Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed. Today we're discussing male sexual orientation cross-culturally. Here are your hosts, Drake and Kyle. I'm bad, I'm bad. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks Lana. I like that because now I feel like it's my show now. That's, That's what we exactly usually try and do. It. That's why we're doing it. So yeah. you guys take control a second half. So yeah. what are we going to start off with, Lana? Yeah. So I Lana. have some questions for you. No. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> I don't have answers, so... <laughs> I uh, expect nothing more from you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think we can wrap it up here. Thanks, Lana, for coming <laughs> on. Uh, <laughs> so, so, Lana, what's a, what's a common misconception or myth in your area that you want to talk about today? So, uh, some heterosexual men experience attraction to transgender women who have breasts but have not had bla- uh, vagioplastic surgery, so... This is bottom surgery or um, a reconstructed or a constructed vagina. Um, often, these when these attractions are discovered, uh, they they themselves will think that their sexual orientation might have shifted, and if discovered by a partner, this could also be distressing. Um, you kind of wonder, like, what your partner's intentions are. Like, are they gay? Are they um, were they lying to themselves or to to me? I guess if you're their mm-hmm. partner. Um, and I'm sh- yeah, as I said, I'm sure this leads people to question their own sexuality. However, um, I think the existing research suggests that they haven't undergone a shift in sexual orientation, that this is just kind of an elaboration on a normal pattern of, um, sexual attraction, like normal heterosexuality. Um, these individuals present in a feminine manner and it's likely that, this experience or this attraction is experienced because these individuals are feminine and kind of appear consistent with their uh, heterosexual sexual orientation. Um, Mm -hmm. It might be less common now for people to view this as um, a sexual orientation shift um, as people begin to kind of understand and accept many different expressions of gender and um, recognize that different um sexualities exist so hopefully it's becoming less problematic but um yeah i think i think it is a misconception that is held by some people and um i think this could kind of be distressing um or just otherwise confusing yeah i think it's important to to address i mean overall trends and things like that we can always talk about that in research and that's generally what we do is on average this is what's what's going on but i mean for sexuality and when you're talking about sexual orientation you as an individual have to kind of do some reflection on your own and decide what sexual orientation you have and and what it's what's okay to have right so so i think there's a lot of things that could be playing a part in that culture, your, your own, your own biases and your own perspectives can dictate whether or not you're comfortable with it or you're uncomfortable with it. Um, and just, 
sometimes you got to do a little soul searching, I think, is, is the thing. <laughs> yeah, I think that's very true. And not like listening to kind of um, what ideas might exist. Like if it doesn't reflect your own experience, then it doesn't yeah. re reflect your own experience. You don't have to kind of take on someone else's understanding to make sense mm -hmm. of yourself. And I think what, what we've kind of got at today and what you've kind of opened up to my eyes is that it's it's not a one or the other option here with sexual orientation or, or sexual attraction. There's, there's a lot of in between here that, that people can work in. It's, it's a, it's much more of a spectrum than this binary uh, shoehorned categories that we've made for everybody. Yeah, and I think, I think coming from like psychology, I kind of was in the same boat. Like I had read all the research and was like, okay, so men are predominantly heterosexual or gay. Um, and there's very little wiggle room, but I think as I've kind of read more and um, have started this research, it seems that that might not be the case and that could be an artifact of culture and the way we're measuring it. Um, and there's a lot there's a lot more to understand about male sexual orientation than I think has been kind of acknowledged or um, is commonly spoken about. Mm -hmm. yeah, no, it's a great it's a great myth and misconception. I think it's it's applicable for everybody to kind of think about them, their partner, their previous partners, what they may have assumed or uh, maybe overreacted to maybe. Uh, but those are things that really as an individual, you have to be comfortable and, and open to, to thinking about those things. And, and the truth is not everybody is and, and culture kind of plays a role in that. And, and you have to be proactive and, and thoughtful in the end. Yeah, and do what's right for you. Yeah, you and your exactly. Life. Just because it's something that's not common around you doesn't mean it's not something that's common for other people in the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, great. I, I like it. I love it a lot. Um, there's no answer to this. <laughs> this <laughs> myth. It's just something that we need to work on, I think, as, as a culture. Uh, uh, and you have to adjust based on where you are and who you are and, and who you surround yourself with. And it may be just one of those things, like the times there are changing with it. Mm-hmm. Certainly. There's a lot of things that have uh, changed throughout the years and things will not look the same 10 years from now, 50 years from now. Yeah. So cocktail party, or not, not cocktail party, water cooler fact. Do you want to go with that? Yeah. That's what you've named it. I don't know. What's a fun fact? What's a water cooler fact that you have for us, Lana? Uh, you already gave us some cool facts in the first half. I specifically I want this to be a cocktail party fact and not a water cooler. No one can talk about this with a water cooler, only at cocktail parties. Okay. Um, because we go, because we know as students, we frequent cocktail parties <laughs> on a daily. Probably more than water coolers. Ah, uh, yeah, it's probably true. Somewhere. I know for sure in Manitoba, maybe elsewhere, there are these snakes. And so when the snakes are young, the male snakes, they pre present with a female typical lipid profile and they are fattier than the other snakes, which is more female typical. And um, when they do this, some of the males will think that they're females or just will I mean, I, that's really anthropomorphizing. I don't know why they do it. <laughs> they just will attempt to mate with these um, male but female presenting snakes. So there's some indication that um, this interest, gyandromorphophilia, or at least behavior, um, is present in non-human non species. 
very interesting and so what's the what's the type of snake i don't know drake you <laughs> made me throw away my other bag <laughs> i actually i can pull it up <laughs> if you can pull it up that'd be we have lots of time it's a great it's a great fact <laughs> i'm asking those hard probing questions <laughs> yeah. this i don't even know where it is and yet you're expecting me to know possibly manitoba somewhere else possibly <laughs> <laughs> um these are red garter snakes red-sided garter snakes in okay. manitoba. and they and they are predominantly found in manitoba well this behavior was observed in manitoba okay good to know good to know excellent i think we're yeah that was awesome yeah yeah all right with that that'll end another fantastic episode of brain buzz thank you all for tuning in uh lana People will undoubtedly have loved this episode. Where can they get in touch with you? Um, well, you can definitely send me an email um, at lpeterson or l.peterson at uleth.ca. Um, I would love to say Twitter, but I'm so bad at Twitter. <laughs> um, That's all right. Do you have a web, like a lab website that they can go to as well that we can post? Yeah. So yeah. there's the, the one, um, Paul Vasey's lab site. And you can see kind of the research that I'm doing and the rest of the lab's doing. So he's really good at keeping that up to date. Perfect. We'll include that on our website uh, so that any of our listeners will be able to go in and find that information. We'll also try and include, uh, we'll put your Twitter handle maybe on our tweet. And if you retweet it, great. <laughs> but if not, no worries. Uh, I know, I happen to know uh, Dr. Paul Vasey uh, uses Twitter and I think yeah. he's fairly active as well. Yeah, so. that's what I was going to say. Vasey Lab. Uh, on twitter great so uh thank you lana again for joining us on on the show uh that's been episode two the concluding episode on our two-part series on sex gender and culture research we hope that you've all enjoyed uh to get more information as we kind of alluded to you can visit visit us at brainbuzzpodcast.com you can find us on twitter at brainbuzzpod uh you can also get to us on instagram at brainbuzzpod uh we do post uh interesting clips and little short videos and all sorts of interesting media we'll also be throwing out questions to our audience uh hoping to get a little bit of your input and help shape future episodes and future directions if you've enjoyed this episode please leave us a rating leave us a review it really helps it's nice to hear good things and quite sincerely to hear bad things as well so if you didn't enjoy it you want something done differently let us know and we can do our best to accommodate you um smash that subscribe button <laughs> share the podcast to friends and family co-workers yep. strangers leave flyers recent acquaintances everyone <laughs> thank you make it as your tinder status <laughs> <laughs> brain buzz podcast tinder profiles <laughs> we can't make them but you can <laughs> that's viral marketing if i've ever heard yeah swipe right on brain buzz podcast uh, <laughs> oh man that might be our best sign off yet um all right let's start anything else no <laughs> <That's it. laughs> we got it all i think we uh we got it all there <laughs> thanks again for listening to brain buzz podcast cheers
The intro track is Everything Goes, performed by Poolside. The song and the title fit the themes and elements that we want to convey throughout our podcast. Don't give AI to sex robots. Like, if anyone's going to revolt, it's going to be these sex robots that can feel emotion. Like, why would you do that? <laughs> That's such an interesting topic. I never even thought about that. So relatable, too, because we did an AI podcast. I hope they said, yeah. don't give AI to sex robots. That's what. I'm ama- that's I'm ama- the message. I'm actually amazed we didn't bring that up. All the time. I can't believe we didn't think of that. Yeah, we it didn't come up organically. <laughs> what else did you talk about if not that? We were talking like car about like ve- self-driving vehicles and things like that. I don't understand. It's to me, it makes sense that sex robots is the first AI question we we could come up with. I should have been asking, but I actually am not familiar with a lot of sex like current sex robots. What what countries are leading in the sex robot game? I right don't now? know, and I don't want to look into it. All I know is I got an email from Quada, so the Society for the Scientific Study of Sex Research, and it was like, oh, that was a great symposium on how they're giving emotion recognition to sex robots and i was like that instantly is the worst news i've ever heard 